Good morning, everyone. Every time I drive here and it's like bordering on zero degrees Celsius, I say to myself, all right, this is the day that everybody decides to do church online. And yet here you all are. So give yourselves a round of applause. I really think if some people can walk two hours to church, we can drive in our car for 10 minutes to come to church. And also, so welcome to those who are joining us online. But for those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen, and I'm going to be privileged to share God's Word with us this morning. If you want to uh, turn in your Bible somewhere, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. And while you're turning there, so the, the other day I was at the doctor and, you know, had a bit of a cough and a rumble in my chest. And so she starts doing the normal checkup things, checking my temperature, looking in my ears, looking in my eyes, my throat, you know, my blood pressure. And then she starts looking at my hands and she looks at this new scar that I've got on my hand and just like, what's this? And so now this is my opportunity to tell the most courageous story of my life. You see, we were at one of our kids' soccer games and Bianca and I were standing behind the soccer post and uh, we were busy chatting there. And Bianca was chatting to another mom and the next minute this evil soccer ball just out of nowhere from the foot of an 11-year-old starts coming straight towards my wife. And so I've got car keys in my hand. I stick out my arm. I risk my life between myself and my wife. And I've got a little owie on my hand. Okay, maybe not quite the great heroic story that I wish it was, but I'm sure you've heard the stories, not only in the movies, but in real life of someone who was at war or someone who a stray bullet was heading their way and was saved because the bullet hit a belt buckle or a book or in some cases even a Bible. And so we're amazed by those stories because we know that something was heading towards the way of this person that would have meant certain death. And then something was in the way that protected this person from what is coming their way. And that is exactly what today is about. And so we as a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus since our time at Easter, and it's been an incredible journey. I've loved the journey. I know you've loved the journey. And not simply because it's been interesting, which it has been, but because it's just had a sense of God's breath on it. And it really seems like God is speaking to us as a church. And so I'm not going to have time to kind of catch us up with everything that's transpired up to this point in time. But maybe you could just jump into the story with me. We're in the middle of Exodus 32. Moses is up the mountain. He is in his fire cloud with God's concentrated, undiluted presence. The Israelites are down at the bottom. Moses is up at the top receiving the law from God. And then last week we saw how the camera pans down and the Israelites waited a few seconds before they decided to dive straight back into idolatry. And so what we saw last week is within a few moments, they broke the top two of the top 10 of the 10 commandments. And they made this golden calf, they made this idol, and that kind of led to this whole domino effect where they really, and the way that I put it last week was that they got totally tanked and a whole lot of nasty stuff went down, and I'm not even over-exaggerating. Moses is still up at the mountain. God being God, he knows what's going on. Moses doesn't have a clue. So that's where we jump into the story. So we're gonna read Exodus 32 from verse seven. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. You've ever been a parent and you're like, Your child is waiting in the bedroom. It's your problem. All right, God is like, I'm done. Moses, these are your people. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. I don't know if you've ever wondered about that phrase, stiff-necked. Have you ever been in a brace? What can't you do? You can't turn around. So these people are so committed to their way of doing things that God calls them a stiff-necked people because you simply refuse to turn and follow me. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and so that I may destroy them. Welcome to church. And then I will make you into a great nation. So just to stop here, we see in these verses that God is ticked off. And for those of us who have kind of grown up in church, maybe that feels normal to you. Maybe it still doesn't feel normal to you. But if we look at the tone of culture, this is so weird to think about this God who gets angry and who gets ticked off. And so this makes some of us, or maybe some of those who are looking into our faith makes us feel uncomfortable. So I wanna talk about this for a second. You see, one of the very simplistic ideas you may have heard on YouTube, or maybe you've even thought this, is that the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament God. This is the God of wrath. And then the New Testament, that's the God of love, the God of butterflies and rainbows and peace. And so we like the New Testament and we're gonna unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And so if that's kind of what you think, what I want to encourage you to do is to read the Bible. Read this Bible. Because if we read through the Old Testament, yes, you will see moments when God gets ticked. You will see moments when God gets angry. And you will see moments when God is so patient. And you will see moments, and this is just you know, what we're going to speak about next week. You will also see moments where God is so incredibly loving. And then we get to the New Testament. And yes, Jesus does all these wonderful miracles. And he hangs around sinners. And he confronts the religious people of the time. And we're like, yes, that's the kind of God that I like. But you know, that same Jesus got ticked. And rightly so. That same Jesus challenges us with some of the hardest sayings. That same Jesus speaks to us about judgments. And so if we are to get a consistent view of who God is, we maybe need to just put that presupposition away and learn to read what is actually in here and allow our imagination of who we perceive God to be to be shaped by what is actually in here and so last week, I got us to think about the solar system. That the solar system works when the sun is at the center. And something would go severely wrong if we had to put anything else at the center. And that was the challenge for us because we are like these Israelites. 
that we tend to put things that are not God at the center of our lives. They can be important. Some of the things we're going through can be weighty, like some of these planets are humongous, but none of them can perform the job of the sun. And so with that in mind, I wanna keep us thinking about the sun today. The sun, as we know, is the source of light and life. And we need the sun. You need the sun. Animals and plants and ocean currents need the sun for light and life. But here's the thing, as much as you and I are alive today because of the sun, if I had to spend too much time on the beach and get sunburnt, is that because the sun was doing something wrong? The sun was angry with me? No, it's just the sun being the sun, right? Recently watched a video um, with my kids about this probe that was launched a few years ago. It's called the Parker Solar Probe. Just go look it up on YouTube. It's fascinating. Launched it a few years ago and aimed it for the sun. Now, if you and I had to take, I don't know, a shuttle or a plane and just start aiming for the sun, just imagining you could get through space, the closer you got to the sun, you would get to a point where you would be fried to a crisp. Now, is that because the sun's angry with you? The sun's, the same source of light and life is simply being the sun. Now, so what this probe needs, something you need to know about the sun is that the surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Celsius. Like, Wow. But do you know that there's a layer outside of the surface of the sun known as the sun's corona? Over 1.5 million degrees Celsius. So this probe was, for the first time ever, able to go into the corona of the sun and start figuring out what is going on. Now, ordinarily, what would have been consumed wasn't consumed. Why? Because it had this layered, high-tech series of carbon protections over it, protecting it from the dangers of the sun. In the same way, we've got God who, by the way, looks at our sun and goes, oh, that's one of my smallest stars. As dangerous as it seems to us, it's a puny little star. It's a nerdy little star compared to the big bully stars of the solar system. Oh, and by the way, it's only one of gazillions of stars. So think about the power of the being that we refer to as God, the one who created these stars. Just think about the difference between your power and the power of a star and then just extrapolate that by several trillion degrees. And now suddenly we're in the realm of who God is, right? And this God, this degree of difference between you and me, that's what the word holy means. There's nothing like him. He created all things. He created the sun. He created the stars. He created the galaxies. There's nothing in creation that we can look at and say, oh, God is like that because God is uncreated. That's a created thing. And so the word we use is God is holy. God is unlike us in every way, including morally. Not just like, here's Steve, here's his wife, here's Mother Teresa and Billy Graham or whoever. And you know, a little bit further along is God. God is infinitely more holy than us. And as C.S. Lewis said, he's good. 
just like the sun is a source of light and life, but he is not safe. So when we sin against that God, we're sinning against a God who is infinitely, potently love and who is infinitely, potently good and who is infinitely and potently holy. So when we sin against the God and He responds in a certain way, it's not because He's lost His cool and He's throwing a temper tantrum. He is being God. He is simply being consistent with who He is. So here's the other thing that we need to think about God, especially something like His anger that some of you may be uncomfortable with. You see, one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable with the concept of anger is because on average, when we lose our cool, we tend to make stupid decisions. All the, the oaks here, and maybe some of the ladies, have you ever lost your cool and smashed the wall? Now, logically, that is the stupidest thing to do. Because now you're more angry, and you've got a sore hand and a hole in your cupboard. And so maybe that's not your thing, but when we're angry, we make poor decisions. We make poor judgments, decisions. So we've gotten used to the fact that I'm afraid of people being angry because on average, people make poor decisions when they're angry. God is not like that. God can be angry and good and wise at the same time. The last thing I want to say about God's anger is that it is absolutely motivated by His pure and defiled love. You see, anger and love are not opposites. If someone had to come in and defile your family in unspeakable ways, if you are not angry, there's something wrong with you. But because you love your children, you love your family, you love your friends, you love your community, your righteous response is one of anger. If you love the patients, you hate the cancer eating up the patients. If you love your child, you hate the sin and the deception eating up their hearts because you love them. And in this case, and in all cases, because God loves us with a love that blows our loves apart, with an infinite love that we will not fully understand, because He knows He is our ultimate good. He is the one who knows what's best for us. He is the one and true source of life. When we go anywhere else, He's not just punishing us for some rule, arbitrary rule that we broke. He knows we're the ones who lose out on His light and His love and His life. And so coming from this place of this love for us, one of His rightful responses to our sin is anger. And so let's move on. Verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and he says, Oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, reminding God this was you, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? See, 
Moses starts interceding on the behalf of the Israelites. And he doesn't just start begging and pleading. He is desperate. But the basis of his pleading is on the character and the promises of God. Not that God needs a reminder, but there's this incredible personal connection where someone is willing to intercede on the behalf of those who have sinned and to say, God, I'm holding on to your promises and I'm holding on to your character. Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now we're going to move on in a second, but here's what I want to point out at this moment. This is what last week was about. That as much as we can say these Israelites were idiotic to go straight back to their idolatry so soon after seeing the power of God, you and I do the same every single day. And on a daily basis, you and I need to reorientate our lives around the only one who can be at the center of our lives, and that is God. And every time something else takes that place, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And so you and I are as guilty as these Israelites. Here we see God responding in anger. And if we're gonna be consistent, we need to understand that God's character and God's holiness and God's righteousness has not changed. So how is it that you and I get to do what these guys do? Yet go about our daily lives? I think that's a very good question. But what saved Israel on this day? Was it their track record? No. It was the fact that someone was willing to intercede between them and their sin and stand between them and a holy and a righteous God. And I'm hoping that for many of us, some lights are starting to go on. But I want you to hold on to that thought. Let's get back to the story. We're gonna read now from verse 19. When Moses approached the camp, now he's seeing all of this with his own two eyes and he saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burnt it in the fire. And then he ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Now he's confronting Aaron, who was his two IC. How could you allow this to happen? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. In other words, it's their fault. They said to me, helpless me, poor me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And so I told them, I'll give you what you want. Whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. You can't make this up. (laughs) Seriously. Once again, you and I do the same thing. We avoid accountability. 
we avoid owning up to our sin, our failures, by finding the most ridiculous justifications for our sin and failures. I was recently reading, we are so hardwired to jump through every single hoop to avoid taking responsibility for our actions. That get this, our brains are capable of making up memories so that I don't have to face up to what I've done wrong. Now, why do we do this? Well, obviously, on one hand, we're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of what will happen if she finds out or if he finds out or if my parents find out or if my boss finds out. We're afraid of the fallout in the relationship or the family or the workplace. We're afraid of losing our family. We're afraid of losing our income. And because we're afraid of the consequences, of course we're going to find these justifications. But let's take this one level deeper. I also believe that we're afraid of humbling ourselves. Man, we, our default is pride. And one of the ways that shows itself is when I've been wrong, there's something in me that says, I will refuse to tell anybody that I was wrong. I will refuse to apologize. And I will find the stupidest reasons in the world to justify what I did so that I don't have to humble myself. But I think we can take this thought one step further. Not only are we afraid of the consequences and not only are we afraid of humbling ourselves, but we're afraid of shame. This dark sense within us that not only have I failed, but I am a failure. And I'm going to fight tooth and nail to not go there. Which by the way, that idea is wrong. But there's something in us that starts speaking to us in these ways. That if you admit you're wrong, that means you're admitting you're a failure. If you admit you're wrong, that means you admit that you're less of a person. And that's highly uncomfortable feeling we're so afraid of. So we protect ourselves by justifying ourselves and doing exactly what Aaron did. I don't know how the computer got to that website. I don't know where the money went. I don't know how her car got there. Right? And so what happens next is very sobering. What Moses does next is he says, everyone who's for the Lord, come to me. And the entire Levite tribe, that's the group of descendants from the person Levi. They go to Moses. Everybody else is passed out in their bubbles. No jokes. <laughs> And they get given a sword. And as an act of judgment, and as a result of their sin and dis disobedience, they were judged that day with their death. Now you might say, Stephen, I, I, I'm okay with the anger of God, but I don't know if I'm okay with that. That people had to die because of their sin. And you know what? That is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. 
I've already asked you to hold on to a thought. I want you to hold on to that thought. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Remember I said that today is all about when something dangerous is coming our way and something or someone gets between us so that we are not destroyed. That's at the heart of this word atonement. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, I'm sure that you have heard this word and maybe you're at some level familiar with this word. But if this is new to you or when people talk about atonement, you just nod your head and pretend you know what they're talking about. That's what the rest of today is gonna be about. Now, I heard the other day that this was actually done on purpose, what I'm about to show you. If you had to break atonement up, see what it says, at one month. See, at the heart of atonement is there has been a breach in relationship as a result of some sin. And in order for these two people to come together as one again and to be at one, the sin needs to be dealt with. And that is what the word atonement is all about. Dealing with that which is between us so that we can be at one. Someone needs to deal with the sin. And that is what atonement is all about. So what does this look like? Let's carry on reading verse 31. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods, made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. In order for two parties to come together again, forgiveness needs to happen, but let's read on. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. In other words, I am asking that if anyone needs to die so that you, God, and these people of Israel can come together as one again, Instead of them paying the price, I am the one standing in the place. And not only am I willing to stand in that place, I'm willing to die in that place. And for those of you who know where this is going when it comes to Jesus Christ, I hope that alarms are going off and I hope that buzzers are going off. And so as far as the story goes, we're gonna stop there for now. Spoiler alert. God doesn't take Moses out. But what gets developed is this theme. Earlier I said that if you and I stand before a holy God, what do we need? We need someone who's gonna intercede for us on behalf of me. And this idea of atonement takes it one step further. We need someone who's willing to die for us in my place. And so see the consistency between the Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament, Moses so loved these people that he was willing to lay down his life for them as their intercessor. New Testament, I'm going to read some verses that says it way better than I could ever say it. Romans 5 verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love 
for us. God's motivation behind this is love. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, like those Israelites on that day, Christ died for us. You see, it is in Jesus that God's love and God's justice and holiness and righteousness come together and help us understand how that all works. See, a common objection for some people is, Stephen, Jesus, the loving, the the, the sinner-loving guy, Jesus, the one who turns water into wine, I get that, but the cross, the violent, torturous cross, that makes no sense to me. How is that love? I want to share with you an example that I use in my book. I want you to imagine you're walking down the streets and there's cars going by either side and everything looks okay. The next minute someone runs in front of you and jumps in front of a car and gets taken out. So you go and see if they're okay and you know when there's been some serious damage here. They're on their way to the casualty ward and they look at you and they say, I just want to tell you I did that for you. What would your response be? This dude's crazy. Let's change the scenario up a little bit. You're walking down the street. Next minute a car does lose control and starts heading your way. A stranger runs towards you, pushes you out the way, but they get hit. And you go and see if they're okay. Their response is, I did that for you. Now you're not saying they're crazy. Now you recognize what an act of sacrifice and love that is. You see, you and I, going back to this idea of the sun, you and I are on a collision course with the sun. And the question is, when we get to that point in time, the corona equivalent applied to God, when we in our sinful condition would ordinarily be consumed by God simply being God, such potent love and potent holiness and potent righteousness. At that moment in time, what are we going to appeal to? And just like that solar probe had this high-tech carbon network protecting it from the corona, so you and I need something, and in our case, someone. And just like the Israelites had Moses, We have the truer and the better Moses. And so that because we are in him and because Jesus is our intercessor who stands between us and who dies for us, we can stand in the presence of God's almighty power. Have you ever wondered about this? If if, if God is the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, if we understand what's going on in this mountain and in the story, and if we look at Jesus and Jesus makes claims about being the Son of God and being the full presence of God, why, when Jesus was simply walking around planet Earth, didn't people just get destroyed? Why, when people laid hands on lepers and sinners to pray for them, why weren't they burnt to a crisp if it's the same God? And the answer is, yes, Jesus is fully God. And the fullness of God's glory, John 1.14 tells us that in Jesus, we've seen the glory of God. It's in Jesus. 
And Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus is the one who is in a sense our protective shield. He is the one who protects us in our sinful weakened states against the almighty power of God. And so that is why Jesus can bring the presence of God to sinners. And in himself, he is the one who brings forgiveness. And in himself, he is the one who lays down his life for you and for me. And here's the great thing. Because you and I are in Christ, for those of us who are Christians, just one of the ways the Bible talks about that is that we're in Christ. Just picture us being in Christ because we're in Christ. Not only do we dodge the bullets of God's holiness, but the Scriptures take it way further that we get to stand in God's presence. We get to enjoy God's presence. And both now and for all eternity, and the time will come when we get transformed somehow into an image of Christ. And then we with unveiled faces will be able to see the glory of the Lord. Now listen, as much as people want a palatable Christianity, a Christianity that tells you how blessed and highly favored you are, that your breakthrough is coming. We've got seven months of the year, six months of the year for your breakthrough to come. Right, it's around the corner. We want that Christianity. If we preached that gospel here at Riverside, we would have people busting at the seams here because that's what we want to hear. But if once again, we're gonna try and be consistent with what is God actually saying about himself? Now, there are many things he says about himself, but right at the center is this story and the story of Jesus Christ. And I know that some of us want to say, and maybe even those who aren't believers, Stephen, the, the love of God, the grace of God, the peace of God, give me that stuff. But the cross, sin, judgment, just relax with that stuff. Guys, I want to only show you that it doesn't matter how liberal you get. You cannot escape that the greatest story ever told and the greatest act of love is atonement. When someone is willing to lay down their life for the sake of somebody else. You want some proof? I'm not going to ask for hands. Any Harry Potter fans? Harry Potter lays down his life for the people he loves. Now, is J.K. Rowling trying to tell the story of Jesus? Of course not. But somehow she knows that this is the climax of the story, the story of atonement. Not convinced? Star Wars, any Star Wars fans here? Darth Vader, what does he do? He lays down his life for the sake of his son, Luke. The fact that he loves him. Then, of course, we get to C.S. Lewis, who is trying to help us see Jesus. We get to the Chronicles of Narnia. What does Aslan do? He lays down his life for the sake of those he loves. And in case you need more convincing, let's look at Bruce Willis. 
Anyone know what movie I'm talking about here? Don't want to close my eyes. Don't want to fall asleep. What movie am I talking about here? Armageddon. All right. For those of you who don't know the movie, if you're too young, ask your parents, all right? Bruce Willis, something like me, but with smaller biceps. But there's this asteroid heading straight for planet Earth and he's this deep core driller and the team goes on and they put this nuke at the bottom of this, at the heart of this asteroid and they know they've got seconds before they can blow this thing up. But someone has to be there to do it. So what does Bruce Willis do? I will lay down my life for the sake of humanity and my daughter. Atonement is the greatest story that's ever been told. Now, I'm not endorsing all of these movies. I'm not saying that all of these people are consistent with all aspects of who Jesus is. But they know what God knows, that somehow in the fabric of the universe is a story of atonement. Now, listen, just now in a few minutes' time, we're going to go outside and nice half fall to winter probably 16 odd degrees Celsius. And you're gonna forget that closer to the sun, it's burning at 1.6 million degrees Celsius. Carlos, that's three million degrees Fahrenheit for you, my brother. And, and, and we're just gonna say, you know, why is it so cold today? And, and we're gonna complain. And it's gonna be completely out of our minds that the sun is incredibly dangerous if we are too close to it. And that's okay. Because I know while Elon Musk wants to put someone on Mars, ain't no one going to the sun. In the same way, you and I are gonna go outside and have a cup of tea or coffee, nice brownie, gonna go home, have some lunch, have a nap, wake up, go to work. At some point, you're gonna break one of the top two and you're gonna lie and you're gonna deceive and you're gonna do something dodgy and you're gonna look at something you shouldn't and you're gonna think about something you shouldn't. And you've come to expect that what doesn't happen to you at that exact point in time is that you don't get zapped. And that actually I enjoyed that. And I might just continue doing that. And just like the sun, you're gonna forget that God is just infinitely more powerful than the sun. And his potent love and righteousness and holiness is gonna be just the furthest thing from your mind. But the difference between the sun and God is that one day you and I will stand before God in his full potency. Being God, being holy, being love, being righteous, being just. If you need one last little thought to hang your thoughts on here when it comes to the justice of God, let me ask you this question. We know we live in a messed up world. Just read the headlines for five minutes and then just please switch your phone off before you get too depressed. There's something in us, whether you're a believer or not, that wants justice, that wants all wrongs righted, that wants everyone to be held accountable for what they did. So let me ask you the question. 
Does that ever happen on planet Earth? No. Incredibly unjust people die wealthy and happy. Incredibly righteous people die for their faith, die poor, die clinging to hope. And we all know the truth of that. So you've got two options. Either we live in an unjust world and justice is something we can never strive for or there's another world where justice is given to us. Where wrongs are righted and where we do get our just deserves. The only problem is, it's not just those other bad people, it's you and me too, standing before a holy God. And at that point in time, who or what are you gonna trust? The scriptures say crystal clearly that the only one who can allow us in the presence of God, the undiluted presence of God is Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who are Christians, I'm hoping something in you is just like mind blown. Stephen, I know this stuff, but thank you for the reminder. And, and, and my heart is moved. And I'm just so grateful for Jesus. But some of us here this morning or listening online may not be Christians. And something in you is starting to just nag at the back of your mind. What if this stuff is true? What if we are all going to be held accountable? What if the God behind this infinite, this finite but crazy awesome uh, 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 cosmos, what if I am going to stand in front of Him one day? What if He is, as C.S. Lewis says, infinitely good and not safe? At that point in time, what am I going to do then? And so I just want to give you an opportunity today to trust Jesus Christ. The one who on that cross absorbed the anger of God against sin. The very same sin you hate. You hate letting yourself down. You hate it when people let you down. You hate the same news headlines that I hate, that God hates. And God is going to act against that one day. Just part of that's in me. Except Jesus, my intercessor, stood in my place and died in my place. And so for all of us, I'm going to ask that we just, I know this is quite a heavy hitting concept. This is the heart of our faith. And I want to invite all of us to respond in some way. So let's just close our eyes here. Father, as uncomfortable as some of these ideas make us, I thank you that you are a God that hates sin. That you are a God that hates what destroys us. You're a God that hates what destroys our relationships. 
our relationships with one another, our relationships with ourselves, our relationship with you. God, I thank you that you love us so much that you hate what happens to us when we substitute you for anything. God, I also thank you that it is not up to me to fix the problem. the, The Lord, Lord, you loved us so much that you gave us your son. You fixed the problem in Jesus. And we get to receive that by trusting you, God. And for those of us who already trust you, I just pray that there's a root that goes a little bit deeper. There's something that strengthens the faith I already have in you. That allows my heart to respond with greater worship. But Father, for those of us who are hearing this and who have made it to the end, I pray that there's a light going on. That your Holy Spirit is just drawing us out, helping us recognize that this is at the fabric and the heart of the universe. And this is the good news. That we'll be held account, but in Jesus I have an intercessor, the true and the better Moses. So if that's you, I just want to encourage you with some prayer along the lines of, Jesus, I trust you. I know I think of myself as a good person, but if I'm honest and if I stop the Aaron stuff, if I stop all the justifications, yes, I do try and be a good person. But there are so many times I let myself down, my family down, others down. There are some things in my life that I'm deeply ashamed of. And if I have to be held accountable for that, I know I'm in trouble. But God, I thank you that the good news is that I don't have to pay for that. That I look to Jesus, my intercessor, the one who died in my place. And Jesus, I pray for anyone praying that prayer, that as they look to you, you are moving so powerfully into them. That the truth of this is exploding in their hearts and minds. That you are sealing them with your presence and with your spirit. That they experience life and freedom from guilt and freedom from shame. That we can be at one with you again because of your atonement, Jesus. And so I pray that there's salvation in this place this morning. Folks, there's no easy way to end off today's message, so we're just going to do that.